afternoon and welcome to Establishing Accurate Patient Identity as the Cornerstone of Your Interoperability Strategy, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Verado. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to your participation. You can send in your questions or comments at any time in the Q&A box and we'll take those later in the program. Nice way to view the screen, click on the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get the video boxes and the slides the size you want them. And it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're gonna go about 35, 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Michael Saad, SVP and CIO at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. David Chow, Health System Technology Executive, who's been with a number of prominent institutions, and Clay Ritchie, CEO with Verado. All right, let's jump right in. Um, Michael, uh, can you give us an overview of your organization and your role? Good afternoon, everybody. Anthony, thank you for having me on. I look forward to spending some time here with Clay and David talking about our important topic today. I am Michael Saad. I'm the Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. University of Tennessee Medical Center is a, a two-hospital, soon-to-be three-hospital system in East Tennessee in the college town of uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, prior to joining UT Medical Center about six years ago, I did a little stint as a consultant and then uh, really cut my teeth in healthcare at Henry Ford Health System up in Detroit, Michigan, where I spent five years as the CTO and then a year and a half as the interim CIO up there. Very good. David, you want to tell us a little bit about your experience? Sure. So I'm currently with a public academic medical center. Um, prior to that, I worked for various healthcare institutions in the for-profit. I've been a nonprofit pediatric specialty, um, done a few international startups, joint ventures as well. So I would say I've seen the whole entire gamut of the healthcare provider space. And happy to be here, Anthony. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, David. Clay? Hi, uh, Anthony and team, uh, Michael and David, thank you for joining us. Uh, you know, I'm the CEO of Verado, and uh, at Verado, our mission is to be the identity experts for healthcare that um, uh, that enables better care everywhere by solving the problem that we think drives everything else, which is knowing who is who. Uh, our single focus in life is to help organizations uh, create a 360-degree longitudinal view of, their, of all the patients that they serve uh, so that they can deliver better care to them. All right, very good. Let's jump right into it. Michael, we're going to start with you. How do you define identity management within your organization? So I think when we look at identity management, we really need to kind of categorize or define what it is. If you ask a CISO what identity management is, they're going to tell you and give you a much different definition than some of what we're talking about today, right? They're going to talk about uh, access to certain files or folders within a network. I think in today's perspective and the view of today and the content we're going to focus on today is really about patient identity. So from a patient identity perspective, we define that as making sure that we have the right patient seen at the right time and we have the correct match of who that patient is, including the entire continuum of care. So if a patient is seen in our outpatient clinics or primary care or OBGYN clinics, that, that same patient is matched and known in our acute care facilities, and we have that full continuity of care throughout the entire spectrum of health. Very good, David. 
I think just to piggyback off what Michael said, uh, it is important to clarify it is patient identity. And the reason why it's challenging is because even internally within an organization, being able to get to that single record of truth has always been a hurdle in terms of having that clean master patient index. But when you start aggregating that data with what's publicly available or your third party partners, that becomes an even bigger challenge to be able to say, David Chow, this is who we're seeing at this organization, this health system, but also we're also seeing at this other clinic um, that's not part of the health system. So I would say, you know, getting to that um, unique patient identifier is the sort of the, the true north. And that's where folks like Dorado come in to figure out how to help organizations and pretty much the industry in terms of getting to that stage. Yeah, very good. Clay? Yeah, I agree with David and Michael. I, what we're seeing um, when we talk with and work with our customers is that it used to be that understanding identity was pretty much something that you would do with inside your EMR uh, as you're delivering patient care, whether it be for patient access and, and managing uh, the care journey. But in a world now where 60% of patients don't have a, a, a primary, uh, of younger generations don't have a primary care physician, and now uh, people are wanting to, to engage with their health in the same way that they and, and consume health in the same way they would buy something off of Amazon or, or off of Walmart. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing all these different views and, and ways to engage in, in different front doors, both digital and physical. And that identity challenge then becomes uh, even exacerbated as you're trying to manage that across all this, all these different inputs. And, uh, and we're seeing really that being the challenge of identity in, in, in the future today. Is really a, a challenge around the care journey and managing that care journey. But even tomorrow is going to be managing that across the care continuum as we start opening up the world and, 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 and uh, being able to address patients' needs of wanting to have uh, a great experience if they walk into uh, David's hospital in, in, in Texas or in Michael's in Tennessee uh, for us to be able to know them and have that information interoperable and, and, and liquid to them. That's all what, that, for me, that's what identity is all about. All right. Very good. Good start to the conversation. Uh, David, let's start with you on this. Describe the challenges you've faced around patient identity and how it's impacted your organization's strategic priorities, such as digital population health, analytics capabilities, social determinants of health. What is the cost of underinvesting in patient identity resolution in the long run? So let me give you a, just a prominent example of just what I faced recently. Um, so we do have a lot of underserved population that we serve. Um, I also provide technology as a service. So I have a lot of organizations, whether they're community centers, FQHCs, that utilizes my, my technology portfolio. So obviously the EMR is a big one. And the closer you are geographically, so let's just say you're, if you're in a dense location like I am, where I am providing these solutions to in a regional area, Mm -hmm. You have so much overlap where a patient may go to my organization or they may go to another community center down the street or even a community shelter. Now, we run into challenges to where that patient may not even give the correct information to any of the organization. And it became up to us as we rolled out these technology solutions to figure out how to match them appropriately. Now, there are a lot of ways to do fuzzy logic. There are a lot of ways to get to that best estimate. But... We also miss it. And then it came down to we had to even look at some of these duplications or even potential question marks manually uh, with our HIM staff. So, you know, I would say this this problem comes really rapid if you are in, if you are providing your EMR to other organizations that are within your geographical 
county or even uh, city, this has become it becomes really really difficult. And you can rely on health information exchange, as you can rely on so many other partners. But at the end of the day, it's up to you and your organization to figure this out. So uh, this this topic is dear to mind just because I have I'm going through it right now, and we are in the tail end of it. So I do see lots of hurdles, especially if you're if you're providing solutions in within a, a, a small region that there's a lot of overlap. So you're talking about providing your your technologies to other health, smaller healthcare organizations. It's kind of like the Epic, I think it's Community Connect, where is that, is that the same type of thing or the same thing that we're talking about here? So that's one of them. So let's just say I provide Epic Connect, I provide my... Uh, my ERP solution, and there could be other portfolio of products, um, but Epic is the easy one, right? Epic. Mm-hmm. So, if you're if you're providing Epic Connect to uh, institutions at other states, you probably don't have as much overlap. Mm. If they're within the same city. This is where the problem gets really, uh, really, really huge, and you're starting to see, wow, I have all these potential overlaps because they they get marked. But now you have to figure out how to either consolidate that information down to be able to say that that's the unique identifier. We have the accurate information or, of course, you, you utilize technology to, to really um, to do the matching as best as it can. Still not 100 uh, percent accurate, but at least you get to that 95 percent mark where you're working just the exceptions versus working everything. Clay, I see you nodding a lot, especially when David mentioned fuzzy logic. Yeah, I think that one of the things that we've invested, you know, 10 years of technology in is, is trying to move beyond the fuzzy logic into, into uh, what we call referential matching. So we have uh, collected uh, data on pretty much every uh, citizen in the United States that allows us to fill in the gaps where an algorithm or fuzzy logic can't get there just because you just don't know what you don't know. Um, so a, a big part of our technology is around uh, using referential matching to be able to uh, uh, take 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 parcel fragments of a person's identity and be able to connect them with what we know about them to fill in the gaps and, and be able to provide confidence that this is indeed the same person and therefore you can instead of opening up a duplicate record or having an overlay you know you basically have a situation to to deliver a, a, a you know a complete care to the complete person uh, and, and and we think that accuracy is an important part of this but also we think the ability to connect uh, and be the bridge across all these different, uh, you know, services uh, and data sources, uh, like David mentioned, uh, is a key part of a, of a modern you know, EMPI and data resolution pla- uh, identity resolution platform. And those are really the two areas where we've invested a lot: how to create a very accurate uh, uh, identity resolution matching technology, and then how do we make sure we have the proper uh, interoperability and services to, to, to be that bridge across all these different uh, disparate systems. Very good. Michael, your thoughts on the question on the screen or anything that's been said? Yeah, Anthony, I think specifically you were asking about you know challenges we face. And I know all of us together and, and all the folks that are viewing this today have faced challenges prior to COVID. But COVID has really shined a, another light on this issue. You know, like many health systems, we went out into the community and helped administer vaccines. We also opened our doors to the community and saw a lot of the community members that are not necessarily patients of ours come in and get the vaccine. And that really created a lot of challenges around making sure we understood from a registration perspective or a quick reg perspective, uh, or even sending the the vaccine information or immunization information to the state of Tennessee, 
really making sure that we are matching the correct patient. And again, in some of these cases, these were new people to us, people we had not experienced in our health system before. So I know uh, we've all had this challenge prior to COVID, but really COVID has, has really made this a much more significant issue and has caused us to take a step back and to, to take a look at what are the things we can do to address that, knowing that we literally have thousands of people a day that are being vaccinated and going through the system. And uh, that creates a lot of work that I'm sure we'll talk about later too. You know, but the second half of the question you're asking here too is what is the cost of, of underinvesting in this area? And I tried to look online for some, some good cost metrics I did see that Black Book did a survey and they essentially said that 33% of all the denials that take place, take place because of a mismatch of this patient data. And so, um, you know, while it's difficult to quantify what the cost is for underinvesting in that, I think if we look at just the number of denials, you know, a third of all denials, if they're correct, uh, are direct result of this, that has a, a huge significant financial impact on all of us. Michael, are, are you extending out your technologies the way David is in that Community Connect type situation? We are. So David mentioned HIEs, and we're partnering very closely with our regional HIE to do that. And we can talk more about that later as we talk about kind of the master patient index and what we're doing in that space. Oh, very good. Uh, David, Michael mentioned the issues around the vaccine and how that has sort of brought a lot of this stuff to light and the challenges here. Did you also experience that? We did. But we probably, due to time, we didn't have the luxury of time to figure out and match that piece. Um, we just rolled out the vaccine as quickly as we can in terms of getting a shot to the people's arm. Um, we took their word in terms of who they are, um, but we did not work behind the scenes to create this vaccine, uh, what I call the vaccine immunization record. Uh, we do have our system to do that, but it was not matched against anything else. Well, we just pretty much took the identity for what it's worth send the information to the state registries, and we kept on pushing forward in terms of making sure that we get as many people vaccinated. Very good. All right, next question. Clay, we're going to start with you. How would you describe the relationship between patient identity resolution and interoperability? Yeah, I guess it's like, uh, um, you know, the chicken and the egg. You really can't have one without the other. Uh, you know, the... Um, one of the fundamental premises of being able to have liquidity of data uh, is to be able to know who, who's, who, who the data belongs to so that you can have a high level of confidence to leverage that data to either deliver a better care experience, to uh, better understand a, a patient population and risk factors associated with that population, uh, whether you're in a fee-for-value or fee-for-service world. Uh, you know, identity is, uh, is this seminal to the ability to have the interoperability. And I think one of the biggest uh, challenges that we have in, you know, in healthcare is that we've invested, you know, billions of dollars on on, on creating the uh, the technologies uh, that to help take uh, patient information from paper into into the digital realm, uh, but without being able to connect that with the proper identity resolution, it's really difficult to have it flow to where you need it when you need it, right? You know, for the right place, right time to deliver the best care. So, you know, we, we just think it's seminal to to, uh, to to delivering interoperability for that reason. Very good, Michael. Yeah, I think Clay said this was chicken and egg, and I completely agree. I mean, interoperability at its core is really being able to exchange data between systems. But the patient identity piece is absolutely critical because you need to make sure that the patient that you're exchanging data on uh, is actually the true and correct patient. So you can have a you know an enterprise data warehouse or a uh, revenue cycle system and a clinical system that that uh, talk to each other and or, uh, interoperate with each other. But if you don't have that MPI or that knowledge to know 
um, that that's exactly the same patient that creates a lot of issues. So, you know, interoperability is the ability to exchange that data, but then you have to understand, is this data, is this really the right person? And that can impact all things from, you know, social determinants of health to analytics to you know, everything else downstream that you're trying to do with that data. Right, right. David, your thoughts? I'm just still perplexed by the fact that I've been in this field for a little over 21 plus years. And when I first started, we talked about unique patient identifier. To this day, we're still talking about how we could get this unique patient identifier, which can solve a lot of this patient matching. But um, we just, for some reason, we just cannot figure out what to use as that identifier. I, you know, I, you know, it's not. If I think we had that, then we could resolve a lot of the patient matching. But to this stage, I just, I'm still shocked that we can't get to that point. Uh, I know there's a lot of complexity behind the scenes, but as a whole, we should be able to at minimum assign a unique patient identifier number to people so that we could resolve the patient identity once and for all. Yep. Well, I guess we're going to have to see how that goes, right? So Keeps me employed, I guess, Anthony. Yeah, exactly. All right. Next question. Uh, David, let's stick with you. Do interoperability related initiatives like MA integrating social determinants of health spotlight, spotlight weaknesses around patient identity? Of course, um, maybe not spotlight the weakness. I think we all know there are weaknesses because it's, it, a lot of the dependencies also involves data in versus data out. So, you know, whatever we receive and get as, you know, what's entered regarding a patient, that's the value that we have and that's all we have. So um, it kind of goes back into if we're entering garbage data in, then whatever output to try to match, it'll never work. It doesn't matter what kind of, sophistication you have. So I think it does highlight it just um, it just shows that we have to get a lot more um, just accurate in terms of capturing whatever information we want to uh, have in the system. But you know, these 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 uh, situations, whether it's MAA, I mean, I'm not even thinking about integrating with SDOH, I think that's sort of um, aspirational, you know, people are talking about, they're probably doing minimal, but no one's really doing it to uh, really what the industry is talking about, but just MA or even within one, one's organization, I think it does just showcase and highlight the fact that we do not have a good feel. And there's always cleanup, We're, you know, organizations are always cleaned up in terms of their master patient index, right? Getting, the, getting it down to a good percentage of whether it's one or 2%, that's that's the aspiration. That's where organizations want to get to in terms of that one or two percent duplication rate. But you know, that's not even including third-party data. We haven't even got to that point. We're just trying to clean our internal house, and I've seen that at every organization um, that I have been at. Yeah, and I think uh, we'll talk more about that—the issue of internal versus external. That third-party. Now, uh, that's as you said, that gets real aspirational. We're just trying to get the house in order, Michael. I do think it highlights weaknesses around patient identity when you're looking at things like mergers and acquisitions and, and just integrating data in general. You know, I mentioned uh, enterprise data warehouse. It can be anything that you're using to aggregate that data. But if, if that data is at all in question, and if there's a suspicion around that data, then the data integrity can also be questioned. And that creates larger issues. So you know, really what this does is this creates a lot of burden on the staff, uh, IT staff specifically, but other staff across the organization to go through and have to merge this data and to manually make sure whether it's, you know, some of the stuff's even be done today via spreadsheets, Anthony, where there's, you know, you've got 
uh, one organization has all their patients, another organization has all their patients, and they're put in two different databases. And then you're literally having to do a crosswalk between the two to, to manage and merge the patients together. Uh, and I know there's tools, and, and Clay, I'm sure, has some solutions for this too. But uh, you know, some organizations are even just doing spreadsheets and matching spreadsheets together, looking for duplicates. So uh, it, it certainly creates a lot of additional work on organizations to have to go through and understand, is patient A really patient A, or are we also looking at two different types of patients here? Right. Clay? Yeah, when I think about things like M&A and, and integrating SDOH, I really think about uh, the impact on the patient experience. So, um, you know, a recent survey was done with healthcare executives and 88% of executives said that identity is critical for the patient experience, but only 14% said that they've got the right solutions in-house to manage the identity to make it to, to actually improve the, to, to deliver the experience that they want. And when you think about um, M&A, it's a great example of that. So you've got two health systems that come together. It's an opportunity to create one plus one equals three for the patient to deliver an amazing experience. But the first interaction with the new system is they don't know who they are. So that's why you know, M&A is so, you know, identity is so important to be able to bring those, those things together so that we, uh, the, the, the combined health system has a chance to exceed expectations and really show that consumer that they know them as they deliver uh, care and, and, and reach out to them. Uh, then on the SEOH side, a good example there would be, um, you know, we already have some, some customers in public health uh, that are trying to, or working with us to deliver, us to, to take SDOH data, marry that with identity, and then be able to reach out proactively to, to citizens that maybe don't have transportation or they expect what, what, what would need transportation so that they can proactively provide transportation to folks that can help them get to their appointments and, and, and help them uh, before they have to ask for help, get the help that they need to, 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 to get access to care. So I think there's a good example is where if you have the identity platform there, you can deliver that, that patient experience that, that uh, is amazing. And these are good, some good examples of, of where that could be a problem if you don't. Very good. All right. Next question, Michael, we're going to start with you. How does an inability to aggregate useful patient data from the EHR, but also from other systems like CRM, MDM, telehealth, portal, et cetera, impact your organization? I think it impacts multiple facets of the organization. So think about it from a, just a patient flow perspective. A patient comes into registration and registration at that point of care or um, at the time when they're, they're interacting with the patient have to determine on the spot, is this really the patient that's in front of me or is it this other Mrs. Lopez that's in our database that has uh, either the same date of birth or a similar date of birth? So the burden is on the registrars to help to figure some of that out. If a patient presents in the emergency department, uh, the same thing, the emergency department has to try to figure out who's this patient, uh, how do they interact. If there's uh, multiple records created, you have then the uh, HIM department and the IT departments have to get together and do combines and merges. And, and there's potential patient safety issues you know, related to that as you're doing a combine or a merge and merging different medical records together. And then you've got the billing aspect of this you know, way downstream, which is, as we talked about earlier, if, if that number is true and it truly is 33% of all denials, are a result of this, um, that is creating a significant impact on the revenue streams for the organizations too. And the amount of individuals and FTEs needed just to go through and make sure that that's, that's cleaned up and accurate. So the entire kind of continuum of care, uh, the entire episode of care from registration to HIM to IT to all the way downstream to the billing, uh, it impacts the entire organization. Yep, David? Not sure if I could follow anything that was after what Michael said. I think he's spot on. Um, so 
I think the the key is we do have solutions. We have a lot of solutions in, in the hospital space in terms of trying to do this um, best matching. Um, but like I said, it's not perfect. And yes, the impact is everywhere. So yeah, and you're in, you said you're in the middle of it, right? Because of the extension of of the different tools you have, and the fact that they're being used in close proximity. And you sound like you're right in the middle of this this fight right now. Is that correct? I am. Um, I think just to, just because I am also the, a technology provider, um, trying to. I think we have the aspiration of one patient, one record within this, the city boundaries. So I'm, um, you know, this is top of mind for me because we want to get to that stage. Um, but yeah, it, it is hard. Uh, I also deal with third party data like correctional health. So I extended Epic to a jail system. Okay, so that's a very different model now. This is not just the hospital. So I have jail health care that we provide um, um, care for. And this jail has about 10,000 inmates. So that's about 10,000 patients on a daily basis. That's their census, guys. This is not just, you know, 10,000 um, people. This is 10,000, a census of 10,000. So they're a very different scale, very different hurdle. And, you know, people go in and out of jail. And they go to different places to, to get service. And we have to figure out how to really aggregate that and say, okay, this is who they are. Um, so it's a, it's a complex problem. It's a fun problem to have and top of mind for me. So I'm sure you yep. appreciate that. Yep. Clay. Yeah. I think David and Michael absolutely nailed it. Um, you know, I think when I talk to a lot of our customers and, and they think about the, the challenges they have ahead with, with the new paradigms of delivering care with all these different front doors, you know, it's really about being able to meet ex the expectations of the consumer where if they have a telehealth visit, that that visit isn't a separate care, care event with, uh, than it is if they had an inpatient visit or an outpatient visit. So it's really being able to bridge uh, all of those different experiences so that the patient really believes that, there are, that, that, that it's all one, one health system delivering uh, across that, 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 that care journey. And I think that the health systems that do that well are, are, will be the ones that really win the hearts and minds of, 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 the, of, the, of the new digital age consumer. And I think those who don't will, will continue to struggle with retention uh, needs. I mean, the latest numbers I saw show that millennials and younger um, are, literally have uh, between 60 and 70 percent um, proclivity to change their, their, their primary care physician, uh, you know, kind of every year. Like they're, they're fickle as can be. And that's really because they're really prioritizing convenience and um, also just continuity of care uh, over kind of the traditional kind of uh, uh, you know, elements. So I think that, you know, that, that's what we see that's really coming together is if, if all these different experiences and the different systems managing them, how do we create one experience by having all of them come together? Uh, and, and you can't do that without identity. All and right. Anthony, I think, Go ahead. Anthony, Go ahead I think Clay and Clay and David are bringing up some good points here too. And I'm really hearing three buckets really. So one is acute care. So, you know, the patient in the acute care setting, the other is uh, an outpatient setting that's somehow affiliated with the health system itself, whether it's, as Clay just said, telemedicine um, or it's, you know, uh, urgent care as we just heard as well. And then I think what David's bringing up is an excellent point here too. And that is the health systems that are going out in the community um, and whether it's working with the, you know, the local prisons like David is, uh, or if it's, you know, other organizations, whether it's, partnering with uh, community or faith-based organizations or whatever. I, I think that's a whole nother bucket as well. And I think there's challenges in all three of those. No shortage of challenges, right? 
All right. Uh, we got a few audience questions that I want to run by our panel. Two, first two of these are similar, so I'm going to ask them together. For referential matching, what type of data are you collecting and what type of consents do you have to use it? Are you relying on public data or doing more? How do you address privacy concerns around this data? And a similar question is regarding referential data, as Clay mentioned. Specifically, what kind of data, data sources are you including? Also, what about minors? I believe there are laws that limit or preclude one from accessing their data. And as people age, there is less public data available, as in fewer transactions. How do you account for this? So let's uh, let's just pose. You can pick from these two. I think you can see them in the Q and A box. Pick from these two, and let's uh, let's try and give some thoughts to to our viewers who have these questions. Uh, Clay, why don't you start with you? You were mentioned in number two there. Yeah, I think what I heard there was really a lot of questions around if you're Verado, you're using referential matching data. Uh, kind of where do you get that data from and how do you make sure that it's comprehensive and make sure you have the right to use it and are protecting people's privacy while you use it. And, you know, I think the answer that I would say is that we've got uh, a plethora of, of data sources that are uh, well vetted and um, uh, both in the public uh, as well as, uh, you know, things like credit, credit, credit bureau information um, and uh, uh, across uh, that wide range of, 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 of data sets, we make sure that we have the, the proper use cases and, uh, and allow allowable use cases for using that data, and then it becomes part of our uh, of our database. So, um, you know, really, I think part of the art of what we've done it makes it, what we've done is hard. Isn't is, is not only acquiring that data, but then it's also the managing management of it, and then using the algorithms with that data to to really fill in the gaps. David, any thoughts on those two questions? Yeah, I want to talk about. I think the. The opt-in, opt-out model. I think that was the key regarding privacy, right? That's really I've seen organizations have both. Uh, one maybe default opt-in to where the patient, upon registration, already consent to sharing the data, and I've seen organizations where their default opt-out to where you cannot share any data unless the patient signs off after the fact. So that is how health systems have been able to um, get through in terms of getting consent in terms of sharing. Then, of course, the third party that we share it to also has their process and um, so that may ensure privacy and safety as well. But that's the model that the typical organizations have been used. Uh, I have been working with have been uh, used to. Most have been default opt in. Very few have I seen default opt out. So I want to hear what Michael has to say, whether that's accurate as well. Yeah, David, I think you're spot on. And I think, as you know, there's state laws that govern some of this too. So you need to understand your jurisdiction and where you live. Some states are an opt-in state. Some states require an opt-out um, state too. We work closely with our, our HIE, our health information exchange, and it falls under the, the TPO portion of HIPAA, so the treatment payment or operations. And our data is sent to our HIE, which they aggregate all the data for the community. The nice thing is they have a, an EMPI that they use for us. And then so we're able to at least do a community match of that data while the patient presents in the hospital. But um, again, that's all you know validated and verified. And that goes through the TPO portion of HIPAA. So we don't have any uh, concerns about having them necessarily opt in or opt out there. All right. Very good. Let's go to the next question. How do you deal with the difficulties of cleaning up issues with basic demographic data and other data often used in patient matching when patient right operations are typically unsupported. Most payers and providers are not good at fixing mistakes pointed out by patients. 
for example, that I have been listed as Rissian in one system for 20 years and I've given up trying to fix it. Um, David? Very interesting. I'm just trying to read it. Uh, so it sounds like someone has did not entered the information correctly and even updated correctly. I mean, a lot of times we do not uh, automatically perform the updates. We do have some validation check in place, which is usually touched by a human being, unfortunately. Uh, we still rely on humans to, to actually make some of these modifications. Uh, we're not able to match it with a technology right off the back. Um, so yeah, for this specific question, um, I, I think it's with the process is, you know, we do have a manual process, unfortunately. So I would assume that in this instance, uh, someone has not even listened or done anything in terms of um, fixing that mistake, but usually it's a, it's a, it's a manual process. There is not a self-service feature. I would say maybe that's the, the mm -hmm. other way. There's no self-service feature out there for the marketplace to where I would go in and, and make those modifications. I think we do have the self-service upon initial registration and so forth, but once that is in place after the first time, um, they're, they're, the updating is usually some sort of uh, communication back and forth. Michael? Yeah, like David said, because of the criticality of this data and the importance of it, we do not rely on a tool or an automated tool to do this. There is literally a human that has to go through and verify and validate each chart. I mean, imagine what would happen if you did a combine on a patient that the system thought was the same patient, but you had the wrong allergy information. And the next time the patient was seen was prescribed something wrong uh, or wasn't checked at the point of care and, and, and you had an allergy um, it challenge. So we do have a manual human uh, process here and, and it is tedious and it's arduous and it's expensive. And that's that's part of the problem I think we're all highlighting here today is, um, you know, there really isn't a solution other than, you know, we hear from Verado, we've got some folks that are trying to do this, but at a national level, there's not a national solution that helps um, give us this unique patient identifier. So it's really left up to each hospital and health system to come up with their own process to clean these up, combine them and do the merges. Clay? Well, a lot of our customers will leverage our technology to automatically do uh, matching, uh, now, uh, which is a different question than the writing, right? I think this question is kind of two parts. One, like, how do you create the right relationship between t these two identities, whether the same person or not? And second, uh, how do you use information you may have available to you to be able to actually correct and fix the patient demographics on, on, on the record, uh, Russian versus Russian as an example. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what we like to do there is uh, provide, through our, our stewardship uh, workflows and, and, and user interface, we, we present information from a from referential database to, uh, to the users um, and they have the opportunity then to make a decision whether they want to fix Russian and make it Russian or other types of demographics that we've given them as is, is, is the most likely the right the right demographic for them for the, for this particular record or patient? All right, very good, Clay. Uh, I got to put this one to you, and you can answer it any way you like. At a high level, how much do these identity solutions cost? What is the cost model? How do you build an ROI case with limited data available on the cost of bad identity? Well, um, so uh, I, I think, of course, you know, on the price side, it, you know, it all depends on, on on the use case and the. But um, you know, for 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 Verado, we basically like to focus on uh, how many identities that we're managing uh, in your in your census and in your in your in your in your database, um, and uh, we we like to make sure that you're. Uh, you know, we we like to provide a very simple way of working with you so that. Uh, 
is this is this a, a software as a service uh, subscription fee that also includes any services that you need to make that successful? Um, and then as far as um, what was the second part of that question, Anthony? Uh, one second, let me find it here. Uh, how do you build an ROI case with limited uh -huh. data available on the cost of bad identity? Well, I'm super glad you asked that question because we are uh, we, we just worked with an organization called Sage Growth that um, has built an ROI uh, economic justification tool, uh, working with our customers and with with and with Verado. And what you'll uh, and, and, and we identified areas. And Michael mentioned some really good examples earlier. Uh, if one third of your denials is because of wrong identity. You know, it's not that hard to put together some basic math on the cost of denials, the cost of, of, of the effort to adjudicate those denials, um, you know, reduce your bad debt. Uh, so, uh, so, so I think that connecting the ROI to those business processes that are negatively impacted, such as revenue cycle, such as patient retention and experience, such as uh, not being able to uh, uh, charge for duplicate uh, uh, labs and, and, and services, those types of things. So we work with our customers to identify those types of metrics, use their data, and then from there be able to provide a very clear, uh, significant economic justification for investing here. All right, very good. We're going to do my favorite part, ask a co-panelist. So Clay, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? Oh, I, was supposed to, I should be ready for this. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've already asked. We've already talked about David's uh, uh, handicap, so we won't go there. Uh -huh. uh, so, David, you know, I remember uh, years ago uh, reading about Maria Garcia um, in the context of Harris Health, and uh, you, you know, in, in your neck of the woods, it's pretty typical for you to have uh, patients with, with the same name and date of birth. And I'm just curious, like, as you've thought about, you know, kind of your demographics and, and manage them, managing them. You know, what are some of the, of the forward-thinking investments you're thinking about making going forward as you think about this, this identity problem? Forward-thinking investments for this identity, I would say um, next two years, I have one rule is avoid all shiny objects. We have made so much investments here that we have not maximized any of it to where I, I would say at any organization level. So internally, we're sticking to that to where let's maximize what we already own. From a patient matching perspective, I really haven't thought about, you know, is there a grant solution? I think the earlier question about the ROI, I think that's that's the reality. It was, has been hard for me to justify an ROI because I could get bodies to do it for cheaper. Um, so that's sort of what a lot of organizations, I'm sure they have been pondering about is, is it can they do it cheaper with human beings? And I think at some scale, it doesn't make sense. Um, but as far as what's uh, we have seen um, that made a lot of sense for this specific use case, but I'm sure the organization that you work with uh, at a bigger scale, there's no way they can manually do it. But I would say there's probably some sort of threshold to where DRI and cutoff makes sense. All right. Very good. Um, Michael, do you have a question for one or both of your co-panelists? I do. Not to put David back on the spot again. I know David put him, just talked about it there. Ago, but that's but uh, David, you've got you've got tons of experience here working at multiple health systems across the country. You know, in this case, absent of a, a national solution, each hospital and health system have really been left kind of to their own to figure this out. Have you had experience, or do you have thoughts regarding kind of community working together to solve this issue? So you mentioned this one city, one record. I'm I'm interested to hear more about that. 
But in our case, we're looking to expand our HIE and to really leverage that uh, as more of a community and even a statewide uh, way to, to address this. What are you seeing and what are your what have your experiences been? Yeah, so a lot of us, I think one of the things to think about, Anthony, which is probably a different topic, is we do rely on HIEs because hospitals do want to, we don't want to be in that business of becoming that source of truth. I think that's number one, that's the fundamental uh, theme is we don't want to be that aggregated, but somehow we, as you expand regionally, even for in the case of Michael, he is the premier academic medical center. So he, even though he may not want to be in that business, he kind of became that business of being becoming that identity. So uh, we do like to rely on HIEs. At the same time, certain states have HIEs that may be stronger and weaker. So if you, if you do have a strong HIE, I would say figure out how to leverage them. Um, the business model for HIE is it's a very tough model to sustain because they may not be profitable or they may not charge enough to be able to do this kind of work effectively. So I would say if you if you do have a strong HIE, number one, use them. If you don't, you may need to figure out how to become the HIE and make that internal investments. So that's one approach. The second approach that I have seen and I'm working through right now is working with the uh, the city and the, the county officials because they get a lot of grants. They also have a lot of ammunition and power in terms of how to accomplish this. This is not just a health system problem. This is also a municipal problem within a city. So if you could figure out how to partner with them and uh, get get some sort of funding because the hospital cannot fund this all, but some sort of coalition, that may be an approach. But unfortunately, it is a slower approach. There's just so much bureaucracy that needs to happen in terms of getting this off the ground. I mean, it may take a whole year just to be able to do an assessment. Then you have a whole year to buy something, right? At that stage, you're probably two, three years in without making a huge impact. So, but that that could be the second approach if you want to figure out how to leverage external entities. But you know, if I were sitting in your shoes, Michael, given who you are at um, the University of Tennessee, you are the dominant player. So either partner or unfortunately maybe take over the HIE and build your own. Um, I think that's where you're kind of in that rub, I'm sure, of build versus buy and how much do I really try to be aspirational and take it over. But um, it's it's a tough ask, and I've seen multiple angles just because I've been in the academic, academic medical center side where we uh, they were the largest player and they had a monopoly, and you, you sort of just walked into that stage without knowing that. Excellent. That sounds like... Uh, uh... Might be helpful, Michael, some things to think about there. Great um, answer, David, thank you. David, your opportunity to ask one or both of your co-panelists a question. I guess I, maybe the same question for Clay. Uh, we did not, maybe, is there any quick logic in terms of this ROI? Because I would love to figure out ROIs and how do I make this work, but really simple calculations. Does, does technology make sense if there's 100,000 lives or a million lives? Is there like a cutoff point, just rough math? Without yeah, going. no, we, yeah, I was going to tell you that, that we don't necessarily think this is about a solution for enterprise scale. It, it, and, uh, um, you know, I think that we rarely have our economic, uh, you know, kind of justification based on the number of people that you might have in, in your, um, in your access team that are, that are doing manual, manual adjudication of, of mismatches. You know, it's just more of the, of the, of, of the customer experience. Um, and you know that, that you're driving and enabling, um, and that because it's just, it's just becomes a fundamental part of, of of your strategy. In the same way that you know CRM is a fundamental part of how a CRM tool like Salesforce.com might be a fundamental part of how you're thinking about managing patient and patient experience. The same thing here, 
so um, then, but from a, you know, I tell you, we've, we've got uh, community hospitals up, all the way up, up through large health systems. And, and I think you know, there's significant value for all of them. And I feel uh, moving beyond just the, um, you know, the cost of re- reducing labor, it's also, you know, being able to dollarize uh, what's the impact of, of, of things like this revenue cycle or, 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 or capture of uh, you know, doing a better job of managing population health and managing risk and things of that nature. So, you know, David, I'd love to maybe uh, offline follow up with you about some opportunities, maybe show you our calculator and get, get your thoughts and see how it might work for your team. Yeah. It also sounds like you're, you're trying to transition towards a platform, which is probably where the mentality is moving towards versus just a patient matching. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think that uh, the uh, if I was in any CIO's shoes, I mean, I think I think I started twenty years ago in healthcare tech, and I think at the time there was about three thirty five hundred to four thousand unique uh, healthcare IT vendors that, uh, and uh, I think ever since the, the last twenty years, we've been trying to rationalize to a, a platform, a, a, a smaller number of, of, of platforms, and and uh, so absolutely, David, we're we're very much working every day to expand our our solution set to be able to solve your identity needs across uh, across your enterprise, uh, you know, beyond matching. Okay, very good. Well, another one more audience question. I want to get in here. Do you see Tefka as part of the solution, neutral or exacerbating patient matching issues, Michael? I think I think Tefka will help with the data exchange portion of this. I think it's a good framework. Um, I actually welcome the the newest. Uh, ruling on this one and the newest guidelines. I think that'll be helpful for HINs to better exchange data and for health systems to not have to be members of all these different consortiums. I think so that'll be helpful. As to this specific issue though, I don't see anything in the guidelines specifically that talk about um, standards necessarily for patient matching. So I still think it's up to whatever the uh, HIE or HIN that you're working with to have that EMPI to bring that data back to the health systems. So while I think this is helpful to make sure that we've got a, a framework to exchange clinical data between HINs, uh, I'm not sure that this this is. So I guess my my long my long answer to the short question is I think this is probably more neutral than anything else at this neutral. point. I don't know if this is positive or negative. All right, we could go with the one word answer if you want, Clay. Positive, negative, or neutral as far as Tefka goes. Well, I think it's positive mostly just because it's it's, it's going to create um, a, you know the framework is going to enable more work done here and and that's going to allow, allow us to put brighter minds behind solving their interoperability problem. David, I'll say it's positive until I see something really happen. So maybe neutral for now, but positive uh, aspiration could be aspirational, could be positive potential. It's got potential. All right, we're almost out of time, so I just want to get a final thought from everyone. A last piece of advice. Obviously, this is a a very difficult issue that uh, is not easily solved, Um, very challenging, and everybody's in a different situation. I think we could say that probably for any healthcare IT executive. Everyone's in a unique situation based on their organization. David talked about the different um, positions your organization might have in the community vis-a-vis an HIE, whether or not you want to become the HIE, partner with an HIE, if you have a strong one, if you don't. So everyone's going to be in a unique situation. But maybe is there any common advice that we can give to people who are going to listen to this if they're struggling with this and having a tough time? Um, David, I'll go to you first. 
whatever it takes to keep it simple. I think that that would be the goal for this. You know, whatever you have to do, whether build versus buy, just keep it very simple. Don't overthink it um, because there's this is one of the many other things that organizations are facing. So keep it simple. Don't let it eat you alive. <laughs> Michael? I think partnering with with vendors or community partners. I mean, David has mentioned, you know, partnering with the cities or the municipalities. Uh, I talked about, you know, partnering with an HIE and then Clay, obviously you can partner with with folks like his, his organization as well. So I do think this uh, will require some type of partnership with a community, with an HIE or with an organization like Clay, or maybe all the above, depending on the needs of the organization. All right, Clay, we'll give you the last word. Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, I just want to thank David and, and Michael and Anthony for 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 coming on and, and participating in this conversation. It's been wonderful and uh, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I, mean, I think you know David and Michael's advice is spot on. Like you know, keeping it simple. Um, I think also focusing on the enterprise needs, not 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 just a department need or, or or an individual use case, but looking for a solution that's going to work uh, as you start thinking about the whole care journey and putting the patient in the center of that care journey. Uh, and I think if you think if you look at solving this problem through that lens, then you can create the right partnerships and, and and technology partners to help you really really create the experience that you're looking for. Yeah, and I think everybody alluded to the fact that this is a foundational fix that needs to happen to do all the higher level things we're talking about with data exchange and interoperability. So you're not going to be able to achieve those things if you don't take care of this. So that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. You can use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our tremendous panel, David Chow, Michael Saad, and Clay Ritchie. And I want to thank Verado for making this valuable conversation possible. And I want to thank you, our attendees. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.